Welcome to Radio KBPV, Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village, a podcast about the history of southwestern Alberta, presented by Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village of Pincher Creek, a museum complex that documents the stories of Western Canada's agricultural settlement through the preservation of local buildings and artifacts among a six-acre park. Pincher Creek is a town of 3,700 souls in a vast rural trading area of some 3,000 rural dwellers. A vibrant region of rolling prairie, foothills, the Rocky Mountains, the Pecani First Nation, Waterton Lakes National Park, the Crow's Nest Pass, and the Upper River Watershed of the South Saskatchewan River Basin. Join us in this podcast where we present walking tours of our buildings and hear the stories of the farmers, townsmen, cowboys, mounties, pioneer women, politicians, chroniclers, miners, railroaders, and so many other significant histories of this particular corner of Canada. Well, hello. Welcome back to Radio KBPV. This is Ranger Gord speaking to you from Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village in Pincher Creek. It's January 21st, 2021. We have gone past 2020 and uh, already three weeks. We've had a lot of surprises here in uh, in the, the new year. But uh, as far as our museum is concerned, our museum is still acting under the Alberta Public Health restrictions. So, uh, and that, uh, that restriction uh, says all museums are to be closed. Now, that does not apply to our store. Our store and office are still open, so if you want to buy a purchase a book or any other item from our very uh, unique gift shop, uh, the store itself is under a uh, restricted capacity, but we can still operate. And uh, the capacity is usually never really a problem uh, through the general day. So we are open Monday to Friday, 10 a.m. to 4.30. Well, the purpose of this podcast today is to just tell you about something that uh, has been uncovered recently. Now, I guess that's one of the advantages of uh, lockdown isolation is you do a little housekeeping and it gives you a little time to work on something. Um, Some of you may be familiar with Edwin Knox from Parks Canada, and he's the cultural resource management or manager, I guess, for Waterton Lakes National Park. And he's a resident of Pincher Creek and a friend of the museum, pops in very often. Edwin has continually been very, very interested in the life of Kootenay Brown and uh, Edwin has been very enthusiastic in this uh, pursuit uh, to the point of actually visiting Kootenay Brown's hometown in Ennis Time in Ireland a couple of years ago. In the the paper and uh, archives of Waterton Lakes National Park and their historic archives, Edwin has managed to find And recently he found a Sony videotape, a half-inch videotape, so one of the old, uh, even older than the VHS fashion that we think of now, that is no longer in vogue. And it was a short, dramatic documentary that was made by the Alberta Provincial Government in their educational department. So he thought it would be a good idea to convert this to digital and see what we have. And what it turns out to be is a video created for Access TV Video. If 
and if you don't know what that was uh, through the 19 I guess late 1960s and through the 1980s uh, the Alberta government actually had an educational channel that was uh, ran on broadcast and on cable and uh, unfortunately that went by the wayside with the cutbacks of the 1990s and the from that um, the television portion of it was sold off to what is now the uh, CTV and the, the old channel unfortunately has been converted to what is now called CTV2 which runs very very little educational very little educational programming and it uh, really does not re resemble the old access TV in any way and the archives of what they did produce over the years have since been sent to the Alberta Provincial Archives um, uh, I did a little bit of researching and find out they had about 1500 VHS tapes but I did not find out whether they have this tape and fortunately this was up on a shelf down in Waterton Park. So with a little bit of digitation, we got a 30-minute video out of this. Now over time, VHSs suffer in quality due to, the, due to the age of the film. So it's degraded quite a bit. We believe it was probably in black and white. It almost looks like there may have been a little bit of color in, in there. But uh, over time, that uh, the video has obviously suffered but due to the excellent vocal and dramatic performance of this uh, tape uh, the audio is very good now we've posted the full video for your perusal on our Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village educational channel on YouTube and I will put those links on our Facebook page on our Radio KBPV Facebook page and on our normal Kootenai Brown Pioneer Village Facebook page as well. There's no sense me trying to read them now. They're, the, link, the links are a mile long. You'll never get it. So you can certainly look at those videos. And in the meantime, I've been able to rip the audio from this. As I've said, the video suffered, but the audio is pretty good, mainly because of the actor. Now, the plot is very simple and familiar if you're... Uh, if you're a patron or a visitor to our village, it's John George Kootenay Brown, and in this drama, filmed around 1975, he is on horse patrol in Waterton, and he is setting this um, video in 1914, when Kootenay is battling old age and reminiscing about his life. And he discusses in this uh, performance the British Army in India, the Caribou Goldfields of British Columbia, conflict with the Blackfoot at Seven Persons Creek, uh, Métis Buffalo Hunt, guiding in the Rockies, and the burial of uh, Kootenay's first wife, Oliver Leonese. And unfortunately, he doesn't seem to say too much about uh, Nichimus in the video, and I don't know why. And he also talks about the creation of the Kootenay Forest Reserve, Oil City in conflict with nature and his own appointment as forest ranger of the designated national park. So as I said, it was filmed for the now defunct Access TV Educational Production Initiative of the Alberta government in 1975. And the film itself, by the case, 
is dated January 16, 1976. So we assumed it aired on the on Access about that point in time. And the surprising point is the Pincher Creek Museum, as Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village is now known, is named in the credit roll as assisting with the production. Now, naturally, nobody from those days is working with the museum at this point in time, and, and probably anybody who did has probably passed on. But a little bit on the actor who is portraying Kootenay Brown. His name is Peter James Hayworth, born 1927, died in 2014. And the script that he's reading from is written by Ted Ferguson. Now, from Peter Howarth's obituary, uh, he passed away peacefully at Cedarview Lodge in North Vancouver on February 20th, 2014, at the age of 86. Youngest child of the late Reginald and Florence Hayworth and brother to the late Cyril Haworth, and lovingly remembered by his soulmate and dear wife, Betty. Although Peter Hayworth began his career as an English teacher, he became an outstanding actor, writer, and documentarian. As a writer for CBC Radio, his writings included the adaptation of plays by writers such as Chekhov, Ibsen, Brecht, and Shakespeare. And he also produced documentary series on notable figures such as Captain Cook, Sir Ernest Macmillan, and William Morris and Portraits, of the great 20th century actors and directors. As an actor, Hayworth performed on national radio, television, and the stages of major Canadian theaters in plays by Shakespeare, Shaw, Oscar Wilde, and many others. His final performance as an actor was at the Vancouver Playhouse in An Ideal Husband, also by Oscar Wilde. Peter was a member of the Union of British Columbia Cinematic Performers, Actra and a lifetime member of the Writers Guild. He was presented with the Sam Payne Lifetime Achievement Award by the Union of BC Performers, and he is in the Walk of Fame at the Orpheum Theatre in Vancouver. Peter's interest in classical music and literature was profound, both in depth and knowledge of spirit, and his joy was listening to classical music and his love of literature, and that remained with him and gave him peace during his final years. And that bit of education in his uh, his acting chops are really evident in this video. So, um, as I said, some audio issues and some video issues, but uh, bear with it. I think it'll come through. I haven't tried to confuse it by trying to clean it up or anything like that. So, enjoy it for what it is. And we'll talk to you again on Radio KBPV. On October 11th, 1914, the day after he celebrated his 74th birthday, John George Kootenay Brown saddled his horse and rode 15 miles through Waterton Lakes National Park. As fish and game ranger for the park, he felt obligated to make a daily patrol, even though his health was crumbling. His obligation was not so much to the federal government that employed him, but to his own intense conviction that nothing, least of all advancing years, can stop a stubborn man. Kootenay Brown was fighting old age and the sickbed with the same audacity he had shown as a frontier mail rider, Indian fighter, hunter, lawman, prospector, and conservationist. The woodlands, lakes, and mountains of southwestern Alberta were not his natural habitat. 
he was a transplant, an Irish intellectual who retained his passion for literature but rejected many other things he had acquired in his early years, including an Irish accent, a reserved gentlemanly manner, and a love of the British Army.
that to a carriage, but of a different sort. <laughs> no, no. All of my experience in India was a bore. Well, it wasn't for me. My life, I thought then, would be a series of episodes. Each one self-contained. Each one satisfying. So when I reached a grand old age, I could examine each episode individually and say, my God, Brown, it's been an incredible time. In 1861, Kootenay's regiment was back in England. In November of that year, he left the army, sold his commission, and used the money to buy passage aboard a transatlantic steamer. He was going to the crown colony of British Columbia, to the Fraser and Caribou goldfields where the British papers said fortunes were being scooped up from the rivers and creek beds. The papers called it the New Eldorado, but it wasn't just the gold that lured Kootenay. He was searching for another kind of Eldorado, a place where a man might find himself. sunshine and in shadow, had journeyed long, singing a song in search of Eldorado. But he grew old this night so bold, and o'er his heart a shadow fell as he found no spot of ground that looked like Eldorado. And as his strength failed him at length, he met a pilgrim shadow. Shadow, cried he, where can it be, where can it be, this land of Eldorado? Over the mountains of the moon, down the valley of the shadow. Ride, boldly ride, the shade replied. Do you seek for El Dorado? tubercular lungs or anything like that. It's my old bones. I don't move around the way they're supposed to. Sometimes I swear to God that it's going to fall apart on me. Drop down in a heap. Had enough, they'll say. How much abuse do you think a body could take? Oh, well, you want to hear about my ailments. Guess what you want to hear about is all the money I made in the Caribou. When I arrived there, I was broke. When I left two years later, I had 50 cents in my pocket, and I was in rags. 
So I came to the prairies. Yes. The plains of southern Alberta. Northwest Territory, it was called in those days. Blackfoot country. Now in all that land, from the Red River to the Rocky Mountains, there wasn't a, a town or a city, just trading posts. But the blood and the Sarsi and the Cree had their encampments all over the plains. And the Blackfoot. Now to them, southern Alberta was their personal toy, and nobody else could play with it. I remember once, we were at Seven Persons Creek. I don't know if you know where that is. It's actually near Medicine Hat today. One of the two fellows I was with said, uh, I, I don't like this camping ground. It's alive with rattlesnakes. I, I'm a grumpy in the morning if I've been shaking rattlers off my blankets all night. So I said, okay, well, let's have a bite to eat first, though. So we moved into a grove of cottonwoods, I remember, and we were just getting our food out of the saddlebags when, zing! Yeah. An arrow hit the tree beside me. Then, zing, zing, three, three more. So I grabbed my rifle. Yeah. I dodged behind the tree. Uh, Blackfoot, 30 young warriors on ponies, yelling like hell, riding down the embankment. <laughs> Didn't have any guns, fortunately. We did, we had muzzle loaders, ball and cap, black powder, plenty of ammunition, so we kept them from running in among the trees. Why, oh, I, I guess it lasted about 20 minutes. We killed two of them and one of us was wounded. It was me. You know, I got a two-and-a-half-inch arrowhead right in my back, right here. <laughs> One of the fellows pulled it out. He didn't have any medicine, so he poured in half an ounce of turpentine right into the open wound, and I screamed so loud that the Blackfoot must have been frightened away because I never came back. It's a strange thing, you know. My youth, I used to dream about the glories of battle. And here I was, my first Indian fight, and I was scared stiff. Of course, they say that fear is the measure of a man. But they, I don't know. I, I somehow think that there's no true victory gained in overcoming situations where you're, you're not frightened. The real, the real triumph comes in and facing up to something which makes you shudder to your very soul. Anyway, that's the way I felt when I left the prairies in 1867.
Robert Stevenson. That's when I married Olive. She was a beauty. Slim, dark, and 80. I was 30 in the bachelor. I wanted a woman to darn my socks, I'll tell you. Métis were half French, half Indian. I don't know which half is responsible for their wild natures, but they were just like me, born rovers. Hated the idea of a sedentary life. But Olive couldn't share my interest in literature. She couldn't read or write. But she could do things that I couldn't do. She knew things I didn't know, Métis things, like how to skin a buffalo. I don't suppose that's of much interest to people today. Well, you know, the lady of the house can go along to a store and buy any meat she wants to. But to the Métis, the buffalo meant survival. Yes, they not only ate the meat, but they used the hides for clothing, the bones for their tools, even the horns for their drinking cups. Mighty woman's prestige in the tribe was determined by the number of buffaloes she could prepare in a day. One or two was the average, but a good wife could do up to three or four. Well, Olive didn't like it in Fort Stevenson. She wanted to be back with her own people hunting the buffalo. She didn't say anything. Not until I said I thought we should move along. It was in the autumn of 1875. We headed north up into southern Alberta, and we joined up with a band of Métis. The next three years were exciting, I'll tell you. You see, the Métis excelled in riding a buffalo. Yes, horns clashing, buffalo bellowing, rifles cracking, men shouting. The whole world seems to go into a wild, mad, dazzling rush when the Métis charge into a buffalo herd. Sometimes the riders would go down and a man would be killed or hurt, trampled to death by the buffalo. Sometimes, too, a man would be hurt by his own gun. See, we used loose ammunition, black powder, ball and cap. The bullets would be in your mouth and in your pockets and the powder would be in the horn. And You'd pour the powder into the barrel of the musket and roll the ball inside, and you had to do all that while you're riding at full gallop with six, seven hundred pound buffalo panicking all around you, and sometimes a man would blow his hand off. Well, that's the way it was in those days. Great days they were. And then all the buffalo went. One summer, the plains were dark with them. The next year, you Search for weeks before you found a scrawny few. Well, I uh, decided at this point to part company with the Métis. And they, they didn't seem to understand the idea that the herds were dwindling. So I left them and came with Olive up here to Waterton. Right here we built our first cabin down by Lower Waterton Lake. In winter, I'd go wolfing, and in the summer, I'd go off into the Rocky Mountains, and there I'd, I'd hunt for food, and I'd fish the lakes for trout. After a while, I got a new job. That was uh, taking investors on fishing and hunting trips through these lakes, and it paid well. Olive and I decided to go on a shopping spree to Fort McLeod. 
she'd seen a pretty lace shawl in the store there that she wanted. Even after she got sick, she talked about it. What it would look like. How it would feel. She died. I buried her near the cabin on the lake shore. Let's talk about something else. Forest Ranger. 
could please me more than what the government gave me last July. Gave me and gave Canada. Waterton Lakes National Park. 423 square miles. Oh, there'd be no drill rigs now. No industry. No cities. say I can die now that I won my last battle. I'm not the sort of fellow who just lied out and expire. I bought myself a typewriter and I'm learning how to type. And I subscribe to newspapers from London and Winnipeg and San Francisco. I know more about world affairs than most people do in Alberta. I can still snowshoe. And this month, either on horseback or on foot, I'll do over 200 miles. Old age. That's the last battle. Nobody's ever won it. Thank you for listening to Tales of Kootenay Brown Pioneer Village. This episode was researched and written by historians Farley Wood and Gord Tolton. This podcast is recorded and engineered by Gord Tolton. Episodes can be found at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, or any other podcatcher. Visit our website at www.kootenaybrown.ca. Kootenay is spelled K O O. T-E-N-A-I. Also, visit and join our pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more information on our museum, or even better, visit us at 1037 Beverly McLaughlin Drive in beautiful Pincher Creek, Alberta.